Today's podcast, we're going to talk and hopefully share knowledge with people that want to build a business and sell it. So my name is Timo, I'm 27 and I started a company called Fanbytes at 21, which was an influencer marketing business, helping the world's brands like Samsung, Deliveroo, McDonald's to even the UK government. So from start to an eight-figure exit in about five and a half years. How did you go about building a brand of value? Our mission is to help 10 million people start and grow a business for free. We want nothing from you. In Pep Talk, we interview industry-leading experts from around the world who share actionable know-how and life lessons. That's why we're excited to partner with GoDaddy to power up Pep Talk. I've been using GoDaddy for years and would promote them on this podcast even if they didn't sponsor us. You can use their free website builder and start your online business at no cost and even get help these days with naming your business. For 40% off GoDaddy tools, click the link in the podcast notes below and use the code GDXPEPTALK. Timothy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Maybe we could kick off by you telling the audience a little bit about yourself and what you've done. Hello, hello, my friend. Um, yeah, so my name's Timothy Amu. Timo, actually. That's the name that I'm going for. Uh, yeah, so my name's Timo. I'm... 27, um, and I started a company called Fanbytes at 21, uh, which was an influencer marketing business, helping the world's brands like, you know, everyone from Samsung, Deliveroo, McDonald's to even the UK government. I started in my second year of university, scaled it to a team of 65 people in the last five years. And uh, six weeks ago, we announced that the company had just been acquired in a pretty significant deal by a media agency called Brain Labs. So from start to scaling to raising money to acquiring customers to multi-million revenues and then to a uh, to an eight-figure exit in about five and a half years. So. A very, 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 very fast sprint, basically. Amazing story. And um, for those listening overseas, it's been headlines in the UK, actually, what you've achieved. It's a big, big deal. And um, I think today's podcast, we're going to talk and, and, and hopefully share knowledge with people that want to build a business and sell it, how perhaps you do build a business to sell it, and perhaps should you build a business and sell it. We're going to talk about those subjects. Um, uh, Timo, I like the personal brand uh, element. So uh, Timo, I can see it should trademark that, by the way, make sure uh, you own that. Um, uh-huh. But um, we have something in common because I, I built an agency in Hong Kong called Fluid and I sold it to PricewaterhouseCooper a few years ago. It was headlines in Asia, um, but it took me 13 years. So you did it three times quick. You did it three times quicker than me, so uh, I know I've got some things to learn uh, from you in this in this podcast today. But look, talk us a little bit uh, around, like maybe the initial early days, um, and you know, did you have exit in mind when you started the business in two thousand and seventeen? Talk us a little bit through the early days of of this business. Yeah, so I think in the early days when I started this, so I, as mentioned, this is when I was in university and I started it and then I got a few friends involved um and in the early days yeah we were doing campaigns for you know 300 pounds and 500 pounds sometimes I think back to those deals and think oh my god what were you even thinking um so that was the early days did we have exit in mind so I think um so I think yes um because 
I think for two reasons. The first one was I was 21 then and my background and everything meant that like I wanted to, to be quite frank, I wanted to make a ton of money and that really, and I realized that yes, I could do it by ongoing in the business and, you know, dividends and all that stuff. But I realized that the big exit will come, um, the big cash came at the exit. But I also realized that the type of business, so when I started it, I actually wrote on a sheet of paper, like there were these four outcomes. Either the business could fail, either the business could go public, either I could pass it on to my family or the business sells. And so the business wasn't going to fail. And the business we grew was just not the type of business that would that would go public per se um, in the time frame that I wanted to. And the third thing was I was 21. I had no family. I had like zero family um, in terms of, you know, kids and the wife, et cetera. So the only option really was to sell the business. And so it was a combination of both like personally wanting to do that. And then, um, and then also almost like that's the logical conclusion when I thought about all those four different options. Um, now, I built 19 companies and some of them I built um, in the early days incorrectly. Um, they would never be able to be sold because of my shareholder structure and, and, and business um, structure. Any, any learnings in the early days for people listening perhaps want to build a business to exit? Um, any things you think you did right? Any things you think you did wrong in the early days that perhaps can teach people? Ah, man, so many things that I think we did wrong, <laughs> but also so many things I think that we did right. So I've actually been thinking about this a lot since the exit, right? Because I think, um, you know, it's always good to be retrospective about it. Now, the, now, the first thing I think we did well was that we really owned a specific niche in the market. So the business was like an influencer marketing business. And so, you know, that was a good niche, but then but went even further and we picked the niche inside of the niche. So we then, uh, around 2018, I remember coming into the office and just and just saying to my co-founders, right, we're going to kind of change the position of the business. Um, and it was kind of, it was quite surprising, right? Because in that year, we just done 1 million in revenue. So in our second year, we did... One million, and everyone was like, "Oh, you know, like, why would we change it? Because we've just done a million." I was like, "Well, because there's a difference between um, running the business and designing the business. So, running the business, we could just keep doing and keep making more and more money, but it wasn't designed to sell. So, the first thing was around positioning. So, I said, "Right, we're going to focus on this niche, and the reason why we're going to focus on it is." When it comes to then selling the business or be an approach to sell the business, we can identify the type of people who would really want to own this niche, or who would really want this niche to be a part of their overall offering. And so that was definitely a key consideration that I did from the jump. Um, the second thing that I did, I think, was I kind of... Um, I was very clear, and I think this was probably around 2019, 2020, I was very clear as to um, extracting myself as much as possible from the business. Now, that's not to say that I just then went on a holiday and I just chilled or something. But the idea, you know, 
I built out my management team who could basically handle a lot of the day-to-day. And that's it. And that's especially important if you're thinking about designing your business to sell, because when people come to buy your business, they want to know that there's something there beyond just you. Um, a lot of people I know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they want to sell their business, but really what they're going to create for themselves is just like a well-paid job. Um, so for those who don't know what I mean, if you sell your business, you know, sometimes you have like a very long period where the buyer says, okay, you have to stay in the business for the business to hit its targets or something like that. But really, if you do that, you end up, you're pretty much in a well-paid job because you're still doing the business, but now you, now you're responding to someone else and that's fine. But if you have a management team who can do the things operationally, um, that's the way that you'll, you would um, truly win. And I guess the final thing is, um, I think this is something that I realized that I did accidentally. Um, but um, if I could do it again, I'd do it with a lot more intention, which is try and, try and think about all the possible reasons why someone would acquire your business um, at the beginning. So for example, in our world, in the agency world, you know, sometimes it's a combination. So pure agencies who don't have any tech or anything like that, it is a multiple of EBITDA, so a multiple of profit. Um, and that's fine, but I, but we introduce a lot of like tech into the way that we did our work and we introduce all this really good stuff that meant that we were not just, uh, it wasn't just based off profit, but actually it was based on the tech that we built, the fact like our growth in revenue and also the team and like the brand and all that stuff. So because of that, we had a very good outcome because we had almost designed different value propositions, which meant that if someone bought us, they were buying us for both the technology, they were buying us for the uh, client revenue, they were buying us for the growth, they were buying us for the brand, they were buying us for the expertise, and, and of course, they were also buying us for, you know, the profit as well, but it was an amalgamation of all of these things, which actually meant that, um, which meant that we got a very favorable outcome. So, those were the three things that I think that were really nailed. Such great insights. I, I want to make sure the listeners don't miss any of these really important points, I, I, which I know to, from experience to also be very true. You know, the bottleneck in your business is often you. So a lot of people that are listening now, I'm sure, have a growth problem. I certainly did at points in my business. And when I looked at it, I realized that I'm a generalist and I wasn't bringing in specialists, right? I felt like I could do it all. or I, As I started the company, I should be doing it all. But that, what you've done and what you're describing there is recognizing that, you know, there's, there's a time to bring in other people to do these things that perhaps are specialists, right? Um, what, I interviewed Ben Francis, the uh, founder of Gymshark, and you know he talked about that he thinks one of the reasons his business did so well is because he replaced himself with someone better than him in whatever part of the company he put himself in. Even CEO, he replaced himself. He's back as CEO now, but he replaced himself, right? So it's so crucial uh, to do that. The other thing I think is really important that you just uh, highlighted there is like the value proposition of the business on exit. And uh, I had a similar experience to you. We, we, um, everyone was talking, we were in Hong Kong and everyone was talking about how we should expand into Asia or you know, expand into Australia and so on. But we didn't because we had an idea to sell to a company that already had an office there and all they were going to do is copy and paste our existing model there. Um, if we'd expanded there and hadn't worked, we would have devalued ourselves actually, right? So it's, um, it's value is not time to revenue. One of my investments, and, and 
probably my most successful investment is in an e-com business, which is doing, you know, very, very well. Uh, in their second year, they're doing five million a year in revenue, which is like, whoa. And we were having a conversation and the founder was like, all right, cool. So we've done well in DTC, time to go into retail and all that stuff. And I was like, no, mate, I don't go into retail because if you go into retail and if maybe it, and it doesn't have the same successes online, then if somebody wants to buy the business, they go, oh, I guess retail doesn't work for them. So the best thing that you can do is actually solely focus on the online, get really good at that. And then when you then come to sell the business, you say, we've done so well on retail, oh, sorry, in e-com, there's a massive opportunity in retail. And then get the buyer to then take that, you know, take that shot with you, take that chance with you. Otherwise, you're not leaving enough upside. I think too many founders get enamored with this idea of like global domination and I'm going to do everything. It's like, well, cool, that's fine. But A, it would take you a very long time and you might also be minimizing your downside as well. So minimizing your upside. I know what you meant. Uh, I think it's also interesting you mentioned about the tech side. I guess Warren Buffett calls this the economic moat, right? It's like what 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 would be harder for someone to duplicate? And could they duplicate it? I mean, you had a lot of big clients too. I guess that's one element. It's hard to if someone opened up against you or decided to put the money instead of buying you into competing with you, which every company that's looking to buy you will think that. They had that thought, right? Google talk about it all the time. They spend the first two weeks before they buy a company figuring out could they do it without that company, right? Um, and so, so there's an element of that. So there's always that economic moat. Do you, do you what, what do you think was your economic moat? So I think there are probably uh, three things. So I think um, clients, definitely. Um, I think our, so I think clients, technology, and then brand. So by clients, I mean, we work, with every single brand and every single cool brand in the world, you know, again, like Samsung, McDonald's, delivery, like we led the messaging for the government on COVID on um, TikTok. So we did all that stuff, right? So when you have those brands there, that's pretty strong, defensible. The technology we built, so we had a workflow tool, which enabled brands to be able to scale influencer campaigns. Um, so they could, they could plan campaigns, approve influencers, approve all that stuff, or through tech. And then the third thing was our brand, like Fanbyte in the market had built an incredible brand of just being incredibly good at Gen Z. Um, and again, actually, it's a good thing we focused on the Gen Z space because, like, that made us incredibly defensible. Like, when people thought about Gen Z, they thought about fan bites. And probably a part of that was also myself. And I think in 2020 was when I was like, ooh, okay, we can't have too much of a, you know, too much of a focus on, like, myself. So, you know, we started to bring up more of the other people in the business. But probably in that order, I think, Technology, sorry, uh, clients, technology, and then brand. I'm not sure the order, but those three, those three all together came in. Now, I'm, I'm building something called Entrepreneur House, which is a place where entrepreneurs yeah. can come and stay for free and get help. But you were, again, ahead of the game already. Um, you did uh, the first ever TikTok house in yes. Europe. So I feel like I'm following your lead already on this. But t tell us tell us what that was like. What was the experience like building? That, you know, was that a re you know, well, that's, this is something I think for people listening. Um, you've got a brand called Fanbytes and you do a sub brand. 
um, which is, is so tell us about that strategy and, and, and what your learnings were from doing it. So that was a painful experience. I, I, <laughs> um, well, the good thing is, in your case, you're not doing it with kids. If you did it with kids, <laughs> then, then, then that's a painful experience. So basically, in, tw- in, in early 2020, we built a... So in early 2020, I was just thinking about how, you know, Fanbytes, we, we were very good at being able to help brands to reach audiences. And I thought, well, let's build our own brand. Um, and so I then decided to build the Byte House, where we got six TikTokers to come and live in a house and create content. The whole idea was it'd be like an owned and operated piece of, um, yeah, it'd be like an owned and operated audience. And we'll get TikTokers come together to create content. And we launched it in March, just at the beginning of the pandemic which is actually incredible timing because then when we did PR stories, it was like, you know, these six kids have come to live together when everyone else is social distancing. And it was just like, you know, you couldn't have asked for a better thing. It was everywhere. BBC, Channel 4, Vice, BuzzFeed, uh, Bloomberg even did a story on it. Like everyone did a story on it. Um, So the reason why we did that was, A, I wanted to show that we could actually build our own brand. And and I actually, in my mind, I had this idea of being like this kind of like Gen Z power group where you have the agency, you have your owned and operated media, you have your, uh, like the paid media that we did for brands. So you had a full suite of everything. Um, so that was the idea behind it. Um, and it worked well. Uh, we grew in all followers. We had about 36 million followers across our channels on uh, TikTok and Instagram uh in 12 months so that was pretty good we worked with brands like again the government compared to america rubik's boohoo all of them so it was quite a good um it was quite a good strategic move um on a tactical level it was probably the most uh frustrating mind-bending thing ever uh the reason why was because you know you put a bunch of they put a bunch of 18 to 23, 23, it was like, yeah, 17 to 21 year old in a house, you pay for everything, the rent and everything else, they're earning tens of thousands of pounds per month from brand deals. And, you know, it can warp their sense of like, what is actually possible and what work actually means. Um, and so that was that, but it was a fun experiment. Um, yeah, so that was the thinking behind it. That was the kind of business strategy behind it, and that's how that's how it panned out. We ended up closing it um, after twelve months, but it, but it did its job. Like it showed we could build audiences. It showed we could build brands. It brought us a new line of revenue. Um, it got us a ton of press and marketing and PR. So it did its job. But uh, as a business, shocking. You have, you have to write a book, by the way. There's great stories in there. I feel like I could spend the whole podcast just diving into, <laughs> into that story. If this podcast is inspiring you to start or grow a business, then I recommend you use Taylor Brands. They are our sponsor for this podcast, and they help you not only craft a brand, but design merchandise and so much more. In the last year, I've used this site for every single one of my businesses. I couldn't recommend them more. And we've even negotiated a 40% off discount code for you. Just use PEP. 
P-E-P when using their website to make your booking. Now, let's get back to the podcast. But what I, I just to say, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but when I see the name of the house, Bite Squad, I feel like you were appealing to Bite Dance to buy it. So you, I felt like you had the idea, let's build it and maybe TikTok will buy it. Was was that was that an idea in the back of your mind? Nah, the only reason is because we're called Fan Bites, right? So, you know. Right, okay. Fan Bites, Bite Size, Bite House, Bite Squad, everything. Was was fan bites anything within the one day we'll sell it? Was the was the name um, easily defensible? Owning a brand, it's like you mentioned it in your top three, right? Um, tech clients and and brand. brand how yeah. do you how did you go about building a brand of value? To be honest, um, I actually credit um, just yeah. So I think there were two things we did. The first thing we did was I was I was very out there, right? Just as a personality, I was, I was very out there, um, just, you know, speaking, PR, writing, all that stuff. Um, and I think to be honest, especially in the agency world, especially building our type of business, um, I think not enough people spend enough time promoting themselves, um, rather than promoting their clients. And I think I basically decided, I think it was like 2019, I just said, yeah, I'm just going to, well, no, probably even 2019, like 2018, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to, um, I'm going to focus on just shouting about ourselves more. Because one of the things I've come to realize, and I actually wrote a tweet about this, which went semi-viral, was, um, People don't buy the best product, they buy the best marketed product. And I think when I understood that, I just decided, yeah, we're going to do everything we can to be the noisiest kids on the block. I think that's a great lesson for people listening, especially in England. I feel we have almost a sense of reserve about like shouting about our stuff. It's as if we shouldn't. And I think that's why America often ends up having the biggest brands. You've got to just get out there and be bold. And, and we all know the iPhone is not the best phone on the market. We know Samsung actually has a better phone, but it's the best branded. And then because of that, more people have bought it. And because of that, they've been able to build an ecosystem that keeps people tied in, right? So look, I mean, um, I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the impact fund that you you did, which I, I just, I think, um, you know, sh- share with us what the impact fund is that you built. Yeah, so, this is also in 2020. Wow, I guess a lot of things happened in 2020. Um, 2020 was a big year for you. Yeah, uh, 2020. So in so in 2020, um, with everything going on, like George Floyd and the BLM movement, as someone who is probably one of the few uh, visible black people in the tech and media world, I was like. I feel like there's something to do, but I didn't want to just do like panels and all that stuff, right? That, the panels talking about, you know, diversity is so redundant. And so what I thought was, okay, I'm actually going to put my own cash to it. So what I decided to do was I put 10 grand of my own money and then I sent an email to all our investors and I said, hey, I want to do a fund where basically, because we see a lot of businesses we saw a lot of you know businesses started by black founders and realized the biggest thing to their growth was funding and for so many of them it's not you know like two million or a hundred grand it's just like funding to support on marketing which would then get them ready to then be able to go and raise money but then on the other side as someone who's running an influencer marketing business someone who owned an influencer marketing business um 
I also realized that black creators were severely underpaid by brands. And so I raised a fund by fund and I sent that uh, note to the investors saying, I want to build a fund which just funds black owned businesses using black creators. So in that way, they get the required you know, cash for their marketing. And also the black creators also can monetize their audience and like build a CV and build a profile which they can use to get more brands. And so I sent that and then within... Within about a week, or uh, pretty much most of the investors said, okay, cool, I'm in. I'm in for 10, I'm in for 50, I'm in for this, I'm in for that. So in all, the fund came to, uh, so we had 250K worth of commitments, like in like two weeks. And then we started using that to fund a lot of uh, Black-owned businesses. So by that, what we meant was like, we would just fund their influencer campaign. So five to 10 grand spent on, influencers we do all the work we would get the products we'd get the influencers all that stuff they don't need to pay a single thing and it was really good uh we ended up funding i want to say about 23 or something type businesses and actually about five six about seven of them actually from that they went to raise actual like meaningful sums of money off the back of that because they suddenly could show, actually, if we pump more marketing, this is how we'll grow. So that was very cool. So it's, it's, for me, every time I hear you describe each of these things that you make, it's like you have an idea and you make it happen. It's like many people have an idea, but the execution, you, you, you put your own money in, which, you know, £10,000 isn't small money at all. It's not, so to some people, that's a lot, a huge amount of money. Of course, to some people, that's not so much. But you start, you led from the front and you make it happen. And, and I think that's for the listeners listening. I hope they take that from you as inspiration for a moment, because it seems to me that you have an idea and then you figure out a formula to make it real. But you don't have to carry all the load on your own. Right. That seems to be your formula. Right. Figure out the best yeah, people yeah. to work with to make things happen. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. 100%. How much do you think your um, investor pool were uh, influential in, in allowing you to exit? So, for example, I noticed Adam uh, Kamani is one of your investors. I've actually had the pleasure of interviewing him on this podcast, so I know what a visionary he is. But did, did you have a strategy for getting investors on board that would be along for this particular ride? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, going, going to the point about acquisition, because I know that's what you want to focus on in this. I, um, I think, yes. So I designed my investment strategy very carefully so that, because I, so I knew, and it turned out to be the case, that I knew fanbytes will sell for like tens of millions and not hundreds of millions. And as a consequence of that, I wanted investors who didn't feel the need to try and make this like some billion dollar company or all that stuff. That's actually where there's a lot of people who were in the influencer marketing space who I think many of them are going to die because they basically raise too much money at too high a valuation, which means they're just going to, well, they're just going to die. Um, and we are already seeing this. So anyway, I designed it so that the investors were all angels. So by that, they were just high net worth individuals. Um, so that was definitely one thing that I did, which was basically uh, I did that. And I also didn't have a board. So the only people on the board were myself and my two co-founders. And the reason why was I wanted people, angel investors, who could, you know, add value by, you know, helping open doors and all that stuff. But I wanted to, you know, the fact 
that I want to sell the business or when the time came for me to sell the business that it would be my decision. So sometimes I look back at some of the investor emails I sent as a report and I actually remember something quite funny, which is in November, I sent an email out saying, okay, so I think now is a, now is when we need to look at selling the business. We've had a lot of offers from people, et cetera. And every investor was like, okay, yeah, sounds good. Um, because they'd seen the business kept growing. You know, we grew up like 150% every single year for five years straight. Um, and then by... And then by April, we basically had agreed a deal. So it was actually quite short, but I think the reason why was because they knew, like, I was in control of the outcome. And if I said this is what would happen, then this is what would happen. So I think that was two things I did. Firstly, I went directly with angels because I, cause I didn't want people who whose whole thing was, you know, we need to sell this for like a billion dollars, blah, blah, blah. But I also uh, I also controlled the board by basically not having a board. And sorry, just just um just a quick point there is like sometimes I feel like so many people play startups. So sometimes I'd be talking to some founders and you know they they're very early and then they say, Oh, you know, like this person has joined our board, this person joined our board, and I'm like, who gives a shit? you join the board if you've got the middle manager at Facebook who's joined your board. That person has no sway in anything. The only reason why you think is impressive is because you're swayed by names. And the more that you add a lot more people into like decision making processes, the less control you have over your company. So I think that I did those two things as a as a way to ensure that a business was being designed uh, designed for sale. It's so refreshing to hear this, by the way, because, you know, most of the time people are pitching the size of their board. And it's true. I've had exactly the same experience. I built a company with a lot of high profile people in it. The problem is you have to listen to them. And then you'd end up actually you offend them if you don't. And then you, you know, like you can't. And then equally, everyone has a different agenda and a different reason for being there. And, you know, your agenda gets diluted by their needs and so and I, I think what you've just talked about there, my view is manifestation as well. Um, you said we're going to sell it. And you've almost then made that happen. Um, and, and, and the other thing I really love, again, I don't want my audience to miss this, um, is this whole raising too much money. It sounds counterintuitive for people, right? Like, how can you raise too much money? But it's absolutely true what you just said there. Then they get an expectation to spend the money at a certain speed often as well. And they get trapped by that money, right? As opposed to the way you've built it um, in a smart way, the money you need to build the business up to be the a successful business as opposed to this dream one day it might be successful there's a saying um there's something that i've been thinking about and i actually say this to a number of my uh portfolio companies or just you know friends who are in the early stages and i say you know try and play a game in which 80 percent of the chance sorry try and play a game in which 80 percent of the time you'd win so too many people try and start these you know climate change businesses, fintech, and it's like their first business. And I'm like, yo, this is ridiculous. Start something which actually, you know, with enough effort and a bit of luck and just perseverance, you can win, right? Like, and then once you've had your first win, you can then decide to go do whatever the heck you want to do. The problem is everyone reads 
tech crunch and everyone's trying to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And it's like, well, you're not going to be. The odds are you're not going to be. So don't focus on the Hail Mary as your first or second business. Like with me, Fanbytes was the... Fanbytes was the second business I sold. So my first business was called Entrepreneur Express. I, I sold that for six figures at 17. That was, you know, fine. And then I did now Fanbytes, sold for tens of millions at 27. So now the next thing, if I do decide to do that, can be maybe a bit of a Hail Mary because I'm coming from a position of like an abundance um, position whereas some people will just forget all the other stuff and just go right i'm now trying to raise and do this i'm like well that's just dumb isn't it so um that's just my thinking on business there i think it's so smart i mean that's why you know games work you have level one level two level three if you started a game and played at level six you'd die quite quickly you know like there's nothing wrong with playing levels and um yeah i love it frankly i could keep talking to you forever there's so much knowledge sitting uh, opposite me that i just want to keep uh, um asking you questions but but we do promise the audience we will never be more than half an hour and i think i'm going to break that promise today but it's worth it your knowledge is great one last question just to end what are you going to do next <laughs> everyone asks me this question literally every single person asks me this question um i'm not an original uh, host damn it uh, but we all want to know so the thing i guess with <laughs> so so the thing when you make uh and i'm sure you know this like when you make a substantial amount of money uh, uh I think the main thing that you want to do is not rush to figure out what to do next. Um, so, you know, I've, and, and actually spend a lot of time speaking to other people who've been in that particular position and identifying what works for you. Because often, you know, let's say you have, you know, five, six million in your account. The pressure there can be right time to buy this, time to buy that, time to buy that. And it's been, you know, six weeks since we announced the acquisition. And it's only last week that I started actually, like, deploying stuff. So it's only last week I started buying, you know, the index funds and, and, and you know, buying some stuff here, buying stuff here, thinking about my allocation. So, so the question, uh, so the answer to the question is twofold. The first one is I don't actually... Um, I don't actually know what I'm going to do with the money itself. I've, you know, I've done a few bits here or there. Um, and then in terms of like what I'm, what to do next, I guess, like after the fan journey journey's over and everything, um, I think we'll just be going to do something, um, something unsexy. <laughs> something which is in an unsexy industry. I feel like fanbytes had all the buzzwords, right? Gen Z influencers, TikTok, maybe, you know, chucking like crypto in there somehow. Um, uh, Web3. Um, so I think that, um, so I think that, uh, so I think that the next industry would be something which, you know, would be something unsexy where I'm the founder or, you know, I'm the, founding guy and not the ceo which is a whole different conversation we can talk about like later on or some other time which is the difference between a founder and a ceo because as i've come to learn i think i'm really good at doing the founder stuff and not really good at doing the ceo stuff 
And good identification of what your strengths are is key as well, isn't it? So, well, I'm excited to see. I know my audience will be too. We'll put the links to your socials down below in the podcast. I am uh, inspired by you. I've learned a lot myself in this podcast today. Thank you for sharing your story and for inspiring so many people. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pep Talk. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to follow The Purposeful Project on all our social media channels where we're giving away even more free business secrets and entrepreneurial value. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor GoDaddy for powering this podcast. From naming a business to buying a domain name to building your website for free, GoDaddy has you covered. For 40% off GoDaddy tools, click the link in the podcast note below and use the code GDXPEPTALK. See you next time, entrepreneurs. And remember, you're not alone.